Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Bloomberg Surveillance from London and from New York. Paul Sweeney in New York. Uh, This morning, it has been a dreary and rainy day in New York. And now the sad news of Paul Volcker. Uh, has died here. I can't convey, folks, the courage, the intellectual courage of Paul Volcker in the crucible of the late 1970s and into the early 1980s. There is no precedent in our financial history. With an important report, our Bob Moon. Inflation is our friend. When Saturday Night Live made fun of Jimmy Carter's inflation headaches in the late 1970s, it was rapidly becoming no laughing matter. In the year 2000, if current trends continue, the average blue-collar annual wage in this country will be $568,000. Good evening. Prices in the United States during the first three months of 1979 went up at an annual rate of 13%. That was the year Paul Volcker became chairman of the Federal Reserve. He would go on to be credited with breaking the back of inflation with some very tough medicine. Under the Carter and Reagan administrations, Volcker cranked interest rates ever higher to stem rising prices and slay an inflation monster. He talked about it years later in a retrospective for the Federal Reserve. I do think there was a feeling in the country then that there was something of an emergency that had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with by forceful action and a kind of common sense reaction that there'd be a little pain in the process. Many who struggled through those times would argue that a little pain is a gross understatement. The prime lending rate went to 21.5% today. Before this week, it had never in American history been above 20. Volcker was vilified in some quarters for the impact of those borrowing costs on businesses. There was a cement company that used to put ads, full-page ads in the Wall Street Journal, skull and crossbones under my name or under my picture or whatever. And it kind of rankled a bit. The outcry at the time was widespread. Farmers protested by blockading the Fed's Washington, D.C. headquarters with their tractors. Homebuilders and carpenters wrote Volcker's name and Fed address on sections of two-by-four lumber and mailed them, complaining they had no use for wood since no one was buying houses. The pain was also felt by car makers. The price of the car is bad enough, but the interest rate is ridiculous. Ultimately, though, Volcker's tough medicine cured the inflation problem. The inflation numbers for 1983 came out, and they were the lowest that they have been since 1971-72. That's down from more than 12% in 1980. And by the end of 1986, the consumer price index had settled down to 1.1%. The achievement laid the foundation for the economic expansions presided over by his successors, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke. Volcker would quip that the best new financial product in recent decades was the automated teller machine and scorned financial industry innovations such as credit default swaps, mindful of the risks of the free market. Financial crises have been a recurrent feature of free and open capital markets, not least in the United States. The 40 years of relative tranquility were the exception, not the norm. Volcker established a reputation as something of a one-man economic cleanup crew, called upon early in his career at the Treasury Department to devise a successor to the gold standard, and again as the nation was struggling to pull out of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. He counseled Barack Obama as head of the Economic Recovery Advisory Board. I'm proposing a simple and common-sense reform, which we're calling the Volcker Rule, after this tall guy behind me. Banks will no longer be allowed to own, 
invest or sponsor hedge funds, private equity funds, or proprietary trading operations for their own profit, unrelated to serving their customers. We cannot accept a system in which shareholders make money on these operations if the bank wins, but taxpayers foot the bill if the bank loses. When Volcker first proposed banning speculation by federally insured banks in 2009, he did it in one paragraph. Four years later, the nation's regulators issued a rule based on Volcker's idea that ran close to 100 pages. Ultimately, much of the so-called Volcker rule was rolled back, but he continued to counsel against an anything-goes approach. I mean, that just doesn't fly. and That's where we were. And that's what broke down. Paul Volcker, who stood six foot seven, was a giant of the financial world through a career that spanned more than half a century. He was 92 years old. I'm Bob Moon, Bloomberg Radio. Bob Moon, thank you so much. Just, just extraordinarily well done how Bob Moon uh, does that. We are so fortunate to have the former chairman of the SEC join us. Arthur Levitt joins us now on Chairman Volcker. Arthur, I know... You stood at lunches, breakfasts, dinners, and in securities meetings, listening to the impossible-to-accomplish theories of Paul Volcker. How gauge for us, color for us, if you will, the absolute doubt that he could bring inflation down? I think his policies, which were the right policies, at the time he issued them and spoke about them, there was enormous skepticism in yeah. the financial community. And my <clears throat> personal experience with him was that I believed him. I believed in him. And I was very vocal in my support for him, and he never forgot that. Uh, this goes back nearly 30 years, and it's hard to imagine how uh, how much he was criticized for raising interest rates yeah. to those levels. And <clears throat> Volcker was a very straightforward, plain man who spoke uh, in plain, direct English. There was absolutely no artifice, no guile, no game playing. He was straightforward, upright, and decent. He was... Yeah. As decent a person as yeah. I've known in my whole life, and I was blessed by the experience of yeah. having known him. He's uncomplicated, been uncomplicated, yeah. straightforward. I, I like that. I like that, Arthur. Uncomplicated. Out of Teaneck, New Jersey, a pretty basic upbringing. His father ran the government of Teaneck for a while there as a municipal manager. But what I always felt, Arthur, is so many people missed his absolute prodigious academics, his command out of Princeton of the material to me was the foundation of his courage. He was this, he was truly the depth of his perspective was just extraordinary. Was that evident in those great battles of the late 70s? Yes, it was very evident that this was a man who spoke without artifice, without guile, with none of the embellishments of the typical financial commentator of the period. And he spoke in such direct terms that uh, the average citizen could easily understand what he was driving at and what he was about. Arthur, give us a sense. Take us back, if you would, back to those late 70s. What kind of support, if any, did uh, Fed Chairman Volcker receive from the broader financial community for his actions to try to rein in inflation? He had some support, but it was limited. 
it was by no means <clears throat> a public outcry on his behalf. There were relatively few people who were outspoken in their support of Paul Volcker, but he deeply appreciated whatever support he got and maintained those as his most important relationships later in life. He was an incredibly loyal individual throughout his public and private lives, and his friendships were deep and sustaining. Uh, he shared an office with uh, a man named Dick Ravitch. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, the two of them were close up until the time that, that uh, Volker passed away. And he maintained similar relationships with a number of people throughout his life. And these were not yeah. people that were necessarily uh, yeah. the most well-known. They were people who... He valued for their support and their friendship right. and their intelligence. Arthur, we are so thrilled that you're with us uh, today. Arthur Lovett, the former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're now working to get a number of guests. I'm thrilled to tell you that John Riding of RDQ Economics scheduled to join us here uh, in a bit. If you're just tuning in, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker, is dead at 92. He's been extremely sick, Paul, uh, extremely yes. sick over the recent months. This is to all of his friends and acquaintances of those walks around the Upper East Side that you see him on. Uh, this has not been a surprise in coming. Not been a surprise, but uh, you know, as Bob Moon so uh, you know elegantly put, and um, uh, Arthur Levitt uh, commented as well, just an extraordinary career uh, in and out of uh, public service. And you think back, which it's hard for us to do when you're looking at inflation right now at 1.8 percent. You know, some of those double-digit yeah. numbers—it's just extraordinary. Yeah, it was, and it was the courage of lifting rates to break it, and the intellectual foundations and debate of that were as great as anything uh, that we have today. Paul Volcker is dead at 92. He has been very, very ill. This has been widely expected among the economics community and the uh, New York uh, financial community as well. We continue our coverage. Paul Sweeney in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. We're thrilled that Diane Swank is with us with Grant Thornton on short notice. And of course, our Michael McKee joins us as well. Michael, of the group here, you're the only one like me old enough to remember this agony. Diane Swank was far too young. What were the theoretical underpinnings to Paul Volcker's courage? Were they evident? No, not particularly, but he came in and uh, he changed the monetary policy regime of the Fed to target the money supply, which uh, he said gave them two advantages. One, it was a simple message to convey what they were doing, and he said it also created an internal discipline within the Fed. I think there's a third thing that it did that... Uh, he wouldn't exactly say, but it, it confused the markets in the sense that um, you had to uh, focus on the money supply as opposed to the level of interest rates. That was the secondary effect. Yeah. And so he didn't just come in and say, I'm raising rates to 20%. Right. They targeted the money supply. Therefore, if rates went up, wasn't the Fed's fault. People still felt it was the Fed's fault, but, but it took yeah. some of the pressure off. 
Diane Swank, this is fascinating as Mike shows the fixation of M1, M2, M3, and I'm going to call a Chicago thought uh, ages ago. You were at Michigan uh, with a much more holistic economics as well. As you studied the courage of the late Paul Volcker, what was the distinction that he executed in the late 70s and into the early 80s? Well, not only did he dissent and he voted against some of the stimulus that brought us to stagflation of the latter part of the 1970s, he had the independence and fortitude to break the back of inflation in the back-to-back recessions of 1980, 1981, 82. Yeah, well and said. a galaxy far away, far away when we still had inflation eroding purchasing power. And people really forget how corrosive and damaging that period was. And what's really important to remember is when you turn the spigot back on, when he was done breaking the back of inflation, the economy recovered in a way we've not seen since. There was an ability back then to not only stop inflation, which we have more tools to do, but also to reignite growth in the 1980s. And I think that's very important as well. Also, Paul Volcker had to resign. He was pushed out of the Federal Reserve because of his um, backlash to deregulation in the financial services industry. And Alan Greenspan was chosen as someone they thought at the time was a political lackey that would be easy to manipulate. They were wrong about that as well, they later found out. But I think that's very important to remember as well, that Paul Volcker fought Many of the deregulations and the things that some people believe contributed to the financial crisis in 2008. So, Michael McKee, one of the things that the Fed has to deal with today is political pressure coming from um, the White House administration. Take us back to those late 70s, early 80s, when uh, former Fed Chairman Volcker was, you know, working with the economy and the result was interest rates going much higher. How much support and or pushback did the Fed have to deal with? Interestingly enough, he didn't get a huge amount of pushback from the Carter administration. Uh, Jimmy Carter had put him in there to do something about inflation. Uh, So nothing like what we see today, Uh, but he did get a lot of pushback from industry and consumers. We had uh, builders, home builders, delivering crates of two by fours to the Fed (laughs) in protest. Uh, There were death threats. He had to have a a guard assigned to him. Uh, So it wasn't an easy time at all. Uh, And, of course, anybody who applied for a mortgage in those days knows that it wasn't a a good time. When you create a couple of recessions, uh, you are definitely putting your career and your reputation on the line. Diane, as we look back now at some of the Fed chair... Uh, people to uh, chairman to succeed, Mr. Volcker. What do you think his legacy was for those that succeeded him? Well, you know, it's really interesting is even people, on, you know, people like Janet Yellen, who was working at the Federal Reserve in the 1970s during the stagflation, or Stan Fisher, who's the same age, who also was working as an economist in the 1970s. There was a legacy that we saw that came out of that era, a fear of going back to that kind of inflationary problem. And it's part of the reason why you saw so many um, different views about what should happen in the wake of the crisis and fears that inflation would come back. Now, those fears proved wrong and that it's a different era with different dynamics. But I think it really is important that he forced people to think hard about what the consequences of yeah. that action today could be down the road. And Diane Swank, there's a photograph of President Reagan, and this is the Reagan that Michael McKee knew before Reykjavik, uh, with Chairman Volcker, I'm guessing 1981-1982. And the accessibility of this exceptionally smart in- individual 
was just extraordinary. I think of one of your great mentors, Ned Gramlich, at, at Michigan the same oh, yeah. way. His accessibility to me was se- truly second to none. He really was accessible. And, you know, this is, remember, there were stories written about him just smoking his cigars and how kind of he lived his life in a very low-key way. This is not someone who considered himself head of an ivory tower in any yeah. way whatsoever. Yeah. And I think I remember reading those stories in school and thinking, you know, this, I mean, he was someone to be revered and someone to be yeah. admired given what was going on. And in industry, as Michael pointed out, I mean, I was in the heart of the auto industry that was taking the brunt of this. Remember, just miles north of me when I was in Ann Arbor, right. the unemployment rate in Flint, Michigan went up above 25% during this era. So, you know, it really really was a difficult time to be in his position and he handled it in a, yeah. in a totally unique way and being a human being. Yeah, we are out of time. This has been wonderful. Michael McKee, thank you so much for joining us out of all of our economic coverage at Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. Diane Swank, thank you so much uh, for joining us with Grant Thornton. Uh, just really extraordinary uh, today. Chairman Volcker has died at 92 years old. Paul Volcker has been grievously ill for some months now. This is not a surprise to the economics community, but nevertheless, it marks a significant passing. We are thrilled now to bring you John Riding of RDQ Economics, who has an underlying theory which so much links to the theory of Paul Volcker. John, I am thrilled you could join us. This was not Keynesian theory, neo-Keynesian theory. It was a belief in the foundation of interest rates, the linkage to money. It goes back to Irving Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, moving forward even to the textbooks of Stanley Fisher, the former vice chairman. Describe for us the monetary fervor of the 70s that led to Volcker's courage. Well, I think it's very difficult in these low inflation times for people who are much younger than you and I to even comprehend the inflation problems of the 1970s, both in the UK, where I was uh, studying economics at the time at Cambridge University, and here in the US, inflation reached double digits. There was a persistent rise. People were teaching the idea that maybe we're supposed to beating inflation, we should index the tax system, we should change yeah. uh, index wages, we should accommodate inflation. Uh, and really, Paul Volcker was the person with the political courage to do uh, what uh, Arthur Burns said they could have done at any time but didn't have the will to do it, which was to defeat inflation. But the economic consequences of defeating inflation, because people's expectations were not aligned to a lower inflation rate, uh, were very significant for a period of time. And what's so important here, folks, and this goes back, John, to the the world stopped, I believe it was Thursday at 3 or 4 p.m., and they announced M1, M2, M3. John, explain out of Newt Vixel, and you're one of our great Vixelian economists, how we got to the monetary, the monetarism, rather, of, of Professor Friedman at Chicago and the great David Laidler, the giant of, of Western Ontario. What did they, what was their ferment that led Volcker to the courage in the late 70s? 
Well, it, it was really the idea that uh, inflation, in, in the words of Milton Friedman, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Now, at the time, there was probably more belief in what I call high church monetarism, the idea that strictly controlling the money supply uh, would in turn lead to strict control of inflation. And in that sense, the view was was wrong. But the interesting decision, the Bank of England did something very similar, where the Fed had been announcing the level of interest rates that it was controlling, it dropped that and moved to this monetary targeting. Yeah. Not really, because Volcker knew, and the Bank of England knew as well, that interest rates were going to go to politically unacceptable levels. So it had to be the market setting interest rates, not the Federal Reserve setting interest rates, or there'd be more tractors on the doorstep of the Fed, more people, uh, you know, complaints from the agricultural lobby and, uh, and others. So they switched to saying, if we control the money supply at this pace, it will bring inflation down. But if people don't adjust their expectations, then the market's going to set interest rates much higher. And that is effectively what happened for a short period of time, of a, of a couple of years. Then the world moved back to more formal interest rate targeting, which the Fed finally came out in, in uh, the early 1990s and admitted that they were targeting interest rates again when, when we all knew that. But for a while, it was really a, a very smart political decision to allow the market to determine the interest rate consequences of controlling inflation. Hey, John, what I find maybe most fascinating about the life of Paul Volcker is that 20 years after leaving the Federal Reserve, at the age of 81, President Obama taps him to come in, take a look at the banks after the financial crisis or you know, right at the end of the financial crisis. And the net result is something called the Volcker, Volcker Rule. Tell us what the Volcker Rule is what it does, and kind of what its legacy has been. Well, as Paul Volcker described the Volcker rule and how it's finally implemented and currently implemented is quite different. I, I, I actually went uh, uh, to uh, listen to him uh, right around the time of him talking about the Volcker, which is really very simple, which is if you're a bank and you're taking uh, deposit insurance and therefore the risks, in a sense, are subsidized by the taxpayer, you shouldn't be out taking investment banking risk. Now, uh, we'd had a breakdown of that separation between commercial bank and investment banking <clears throat> or, you know, in years leading up to that. And so in his mind, it was a very, very simple proposition. In the end, it was a 100-page regulation. So um, I, I don't think it was implemented in the way that uh, Paul would necessarily have wanted it to be implemented. But in the U.S., we don't follow the spirit of the law. We follow the letter of the law, and the letter of the law tends to be yeah. uh, written very, very long. John writing with us with RDQ Economics as we consider the life, the heritage of Paul Volcker, dead at 92 uh, this morning, uh, I should say this weekend as well. John writing, we're in a new and modern age. You codified in your time at Bear Stearns the idea of a central bank on the golf course and that putting green kept being moved. How deep, <laughs> how deep was the rough that Paul Volcker was in? Explain to us just exactly how bad it was at the Bank of England or the Fed in 1979. That was it. It, it was it was very bad. In fact, it was on the verge of leading to, you know, major change in in the political environment and the economic, tax, and regulatory environment. 
1979, Mrs. Thatcher was elected. Inflation in the UK got close to 30%. Much of the wow, public sector 30, was on strike. Yeah. Uh, you know, the U.S. was uh, uh, not, not quite as bad as that, but, you know, you had Ronald Reagan uh, replacing uh, Jimmy Carter, and then we had this view that tax rates need to be low. We need to incentivize the private sector to take risk and not tax phantom gains away, because inflation at those kind of rates creates massive phantom gains. Let's say that the inflation rate's 10%, which about what it was when uh, Paul Volcker came into the Fed. And let's say that nominal interest rates were 12%. You know, the tax system is going to tax you as if you were really making 12% when the government's already taking 10% in terms of inflation. So capitalism was struggling to function. There was a tremendous misallocation of resources, uh, and that was something that yeah. Paul Volcker need, knew needed to be fixed and had the courage to fix it. John Riding, thank you so much on short notice for joining us today. He's with RDQ Economics, and just the thrill to have Mr. Riding, former Bank of England and Fed uh, member with us. It's just a great, great honor today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.